First Chronicles chapter 13 is where we'll be. First Chronicles 13 this morning. Open up your Bibles there. I'll give you a heads up. We have read and studied this story before. Not long ago, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago at the most, when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The same exact story is, is counted, and I was going to skip right on by it. Uh, I thought, well, we'll just move quickly by that on a Wednesday night. God said, look, I wrote it down twice. You can talk about it twice. God saw fit to chronicle the story two times in Scripture. There must be a reason. And so we're going to look at it again. But when we looked at it the first time, this is the story of David seeking to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. If you've heard the story, maybe you're very familiar with it. But the last time we talked about it, we made parallels and contrasts between how things were being done then and how the church is functioning today. It was very much a cultural relevance type of a, a concern, how the church tends to run down that road and want to be like the world in so, many, in so many ways, and we made those comparisons. Well, this morning, as I was reading through this again and, and praying about you know, how, how do we approach this, Lord? I, I got the sense we need to be a little more personal. So I'm going to ask you as we study this morning to come at this story from a more personal perspective, asking the question, how do I approach God? How do I approach Him? It's real easy to cast our blame on the church or talk about problems out in the church or even in the world, but what about you? And what about me? How do I approach the Lord? 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it's from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not see it in the days of Saul. Interesting how one administration always has something to say about the previous. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Verse 5. So David assembled all Israel together from the Shehor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamat, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord. And I like that. I just point that out. God the Lord, that's Elohim, Yahweh just to be sure we know which God is being talked about here, although there is only one, who is enthroned above the cherubim where His name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all their might, even with songs, with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. So he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day, which means the Lord has broken through or a breakthrough of Uzzah. And David was afraid of God that day saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. 
One thing is certain from our text this morning, I'm going to repeat this a few times, I want you to listen and give me a few minutes to explain. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to approach the Lord. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to approach the Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray we might approach You the right way. The only way, the true way. We pray this morning as we study these scriptures and this story, which is, Lord, in some ways upsetting, in some ways confusing. We pray that You will illuminate our hearts and bring us, Father, the freedom that only You can bring. We pray that we might know the truth, Jesus, and as You said, that the truth might set us free. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would just walk us through this personally today. Do what I I can't do, Lord. Would You speak to each and every individual heart that we might each hear what we need to hear from You. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Ark of the Covenant, Exodus 25. Verses 10 through 22 gives us a detailed description for the building and design of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen the Indiana Jones series, you've seen it. Probably not the original Ark. I think they have that in the Spielberg archive somewhere in Hollywood. But you've seen that design. It's just a box. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated Ark is Aron, which just means chest. It's the chest of the covenant. A chest for holding things. If you go into any Jewish synagogue today, and especially there in Israel you will find a box, an ark. Every synagogue has it. The ark that holds the books and the teachings and the writings of the Jewish faith. And it's there for anyone to see. It's simply a box. The original ark was a four foot by two foot by two foot acacia wood box. Once that box was constructed and put together, it was overlaid with gold inside and out. It had a gold molding molding around the top called the crown. Had four gold rings that were attached to four gold feet on the bottom of the ark, and through those rings, two gold acacia wood poles would be stuck for carrying the ark. Inside the ark, we're told, illuminated actually in Hebrews chapter nine verse four, what was put into the ark. We're told number one, there was a golden jar of manna from the manna that the children of Israel were given in their forty years of wandering in the wilderness. There was, in addition to that, Aaron's rod that budded, which is a great story, a dead piece of wood, a stick that blossomed, and uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, and the two tables of the law, that is the Ten Commandments. That's what was contained there, according to Scripture, in the Ark of the Covenant. Now we need to understand, before we go any further, the Ark of the Covenant was absolutely central to Israelite worship. For there on the top of the ark was another piece of furniture, part of the ark and yet considered separate, called the mercy seat. The mercy seat that contained those two physical representations, the only images in the entire tabernacle, mind you, or the temple, till Solomon really got going, the only two representations, they were cherubim. And their wings were pointed toward each other and upward and touching in the middle. Their faces were pointing downward. And Exodus 25, verse 21 says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. It was the same ark that David so desired to bring up to Jerusalem. The ark that should have been in Shiloh, but was... Instead, at the house of Abinadab. What it was doing there, we'll talk about in a moment. But what's tragic is this chapter begins with a celebratory parade. It seems like all things are good and all things are right. Time to praise God and bring up the ark. And yet, 
What begins as a parade ends as a funeral. It ends in confusion. With David himself, who was a man after God's own heart, close in relationship to God, sees what happens to poor Uzzah and just loses it. How am I surprised? How can I possibly bring the ark into Jerusalem now? And so he sets it aside at the house of Obed-Edom. I want to give you, especially your note-takers, five wrongs that happened in this story. Five wrongs, and, and I encourage you again, look at these personally and see if any of these wrongs in the way you approach the Lord is the wrong way to approach the Lord. The first wrong, number one, is wrong instigation. The wrong instigation. Whose idea was it to go get the ark at this time? Was it the Lord's or was it David's? The chapter begins by reading David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds and even with every leader. Down in verse 4 it says, The thing was right in the eyes of all the people. The instigation of this event was with David. We don't see anywhere that tells us the Lord said, David, I want you to go down Get the ark and bring it up. What, are you saying that it was a bad idea? No, I'm not saying. It's probably a very good idea, eventually. Although we read something in First Chronicles, that's, chapter 15, that's interesting. In verse 1 it says that David built houses for himself in the city of David, prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched a tent for it. Well, that's three months after this event happened. So apparently, the first time David tries to bring up the ark, Jerusalem's really not prepared for it. Perhaps that's why the Lord was upset. The Lord knew that. Perhaps the timing was all off, but the instigation of this event, I believe, came from the heart of David. I can't prove that, but I do mention that to make this point. Does your decisions, do your decisions begin with your heart or with the heart of God? In how you follow Him, are you doing what you feel is the right thing to do or what the Lord has invited you to do? I don't always want to do what God's telling me to do, and often I want to do the very thing that God's telling me not to do. Does that not sound like Paul in Romans chapter 7? Where does your behavior, your actions, begin? What's the instigation of all that? The Lord? Or is it perhaps you? Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And I think you all probably would agree that if the Lord is directing our steps, we're not going to be falling off the cliff face. But if I plan my ways, not so good. Now please understand, the Lord is not a harsh God. This is not a God, and I want you to get this early on, He is not a God who exacts religious standards and site plan reviews before granting our requests. Okay, he's not hard on us in that way. But there is a wrong instigation here, and I believe part of the problem also is that someone was asked, but it was not the Lord. Second thing to note, wrong consultation. David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds and with every leader. And he said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and, and if it's from the Lord our God, <laughs> we'll keep him involved. Let us send everywhere to our kinsmen. Let's do this thing. If it all seems like the right thing, who's David consulting here? Now, he does mention the Lord if it seems good to God, but that last verse in verse 4, that really bothers me. The thing was right in the eyes of all the people. This looks like the right direction. It looks like the right move. Cain, whenever David in his life consulted the Lord first, he succeeded. Whenever he consulted man or himself first, he stumbled. And there's a principle just there in the life of David that each of us can learn from. 
And that's where do I go for my consultation? We move now not just from you, where does the idea begin, the instigation, but the consultation. Who do you go to when you have a decision to make? Who do you first talk to when there's a problem in your life? Husbands, is it your wives? Wives, your husbands? Do you go to a friend? Do you go to a family member? Do you go to some other human being? Or do you begin with the Lord? Now, I don't know about you, but I stand guilty of going to people around me. I love good counsel. And there's no problem with good counsel if I've counseled with the Lord first. He says in Jeremiah 7.23, This is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God. You will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. They walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward, not forward. And by the way, that's the best way to go backward is to put human counsel forward. You go after and seek the counsel of man first. And you're going to find yourself, more often than not, going backwards. Proverbs 19.21 tells us many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And I like that. There's security in God. There is a solid factor. There's a foundation. And if I'm walking in the counsel of the Lord, man, my feet are going to stand on solid ground. Not always so with the counsel of man. And the counsel of man sounds good many times. But is it really of the Lord? Now, this doesn't invalidate consultation of man. It actually just prioritizes it. You should consult, especially with other believers in Christ Jesus. But consult the Lord first. Otherwise, how are you going to know whether the consultation with human beings is of any value? Unless you have the Spirit leading you and helping you understand. You might say, well, okay, how do I know if the counsel of man is really good or not? How do I discern that? The measure of a good counselor is in how they direct you back to the Lord. I go and I consult with the Lord, and then when I consult with man, if the people I'm consulting with are saying, Rick, you've got to talk to God about it, I know their advice is sound. I know their heart is in the right place. And they're sending me right back where I need to go. The book of Proverbs begins with this proverb, verse 5, Proverbs chapter 1, A wise man will hear an increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. And I've told our shepherds before, by the way, that's why, for me, the biggest reason for having shepherds in the bridge personally And I know the reason is so that there's more shepherding and pastoring taking place, but personally, I need wise counsel. I surround myself with men that I know are godly men so that I can say, guys, what are we going to do with this? How do we handle this? And it's the right thing to do. To understand a proverb, a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, but the the proverb writer, Solomon, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord and then is supported and strengthened by the counsel of godly people. So when we begin with the Lord, He guides us into wise counsel. Well, are you saying, Rick, that it wasn't God's will for them to bring the ark into Jerusalem? No, I'm just saying that David had the thought in his heart and went to the counsel of man and we see a void here of him taking it straight to God. And I believe the problem that occurred in this chapter never would have occurred if he had started with the Lord. And here's the problem. Number three, wrong transportation. Wrong transportation. Verse 5. So David assembled all Israel together from Shehor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamat, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio, 
They drove the cart. A little more ark history. What was the ark doing in the house of Abinadab in the first place? Well, soon after coming in the land, the people started to look at the Ark of the Covenant kind of like they do in Indiana Jones as a religious lucky charm. As, as a thing that if we can have that, we'll have a unique power. And so you may recall the story I mentioned recently, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, these two priests, they in 1 Samuel chapter 4 took the Ark and went into battle with Israel against the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas were killed and the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. They took the prize to a place called Ashdod and they put it in the temple of their god, the half-fish, half-man, Dagon. (laughs) I won't say it. I won't say it. I have a little joke that I like to use with that. I won't say it. I'll say a different one. Dagon fell down the next morning, face down. So they propped him back up. And the day after that, they came back in. Dagon again was on the ground, face off, hands off, busted there on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant, which led some people to wonder, where has this day gone? <laughs> I have a new spin on that one. And the Ashdodites. So the people of Ashdod, all these Philistines, this, okay, here's how, this is, I'm not making this up, all joking aside, this is what God did. I love how creative He is. He struck them with a double plague of mice and hemorrhoids. I'm not kidding. Now, your Bibles say tumors, but Josephus tells us very clearly in the Hebrew language what's being talked about there is burning hemorrhoids. All of the people of Ashdod now couldn't stand up because there were mice on the floor and they certainly couldn't sit down. And so from Ashdod, they say, we've got to get the ark out of here. So they move it out to another city. They take it over to the city of Gath. You might remember that Goliath came from there, the Philistine. Same thing happened. Mice invade the city of Gath. Everybody gets a serious case of hemorrhoidal pain. And so they say, we've got to get the ark out of here. And so they move it to the next city, Ekron. And as they're coming close to Ekron, the Ekronites say, no way, Jose! That is not coming in here. So they didn't know what to do with this ark of the covenant. And God, I, I, you know, you, you hear the story, you go, Lord, you are amazing. What a crack up. Who else would think of striking the enemy with hemorrhoids? Okay, so they came up with another plan. And the plan is almost as, as silly and ridiculous as what happened to the people. They, create, they, they say, we're going to send this back to Israel, but we've got to give them a guilt offering. So they crafted five golden mice. Yes, and five golden hemorrhoids. I would like to know who the artisan was <laughs> who came up with that. But they put them all on a cart, a new cart, and they stuck the Ark of the Covenant on that cart as well. Now, the people of the Philistines wanted to know if this was really the God of Israel who struck them. So part of their plan was put two mother oxen, brand new mothers that had just had calves, tie up their calves over here, put the oxen at the front of the cart, and let it go, see where they go. Now, they're stacking the odds in their favor because instinctually a mother oxen whose calf was just born would turn and go straight back to where the calf is, right? Listening to that poor little calf bay and bray and, or whatever oxen calves do. The oxen instead went straight to Israel. They came to a city called Beth Shemesh, another amazing part of this story. The people of Beth Shemesh were excited. Oh, the ark is back. It's here. Let's see what's inside. And they pop the ark open. Now, if you read the NIV, it cleans it up, and it says that 70 people died that day. If you read the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, the more reliable ones, it says that 50,070 people died that day. 
Why? Because they looked into the ark, which they had no business doing. And it tells you something about the Lord. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to approach the Lord God of Israel. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And the people of Beth Shemesh, they did it the wrong way. So the ark ends up in a place called Kiriath Jerim, which is also called Baalah, there in Judah. And that's where David and the people sent to have it brought up to Jerusalem. Now, I review that with you for a reason. And it's this. The first and only example we have in all Scripture of the Ark of the Covenant being transported by cart was by the pagan Philistines. And yet here when they're about to take the Ark up to Jerusalem, they pop it on a cart because it seems like a good idea. That's good thinking, Philistines. Saves a lot of trouble, not to mention all the sweat and hard work and exhaustion on the Levites, not to mention, again, the chiropractic bills. Let's just save ourselves the trouble and put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and send it up. Those Philistines, oh, they're pagans, they're non-believers, but they have some good ideas. You ever do that? Look at the world and say, that's a great idea. I know it's not a godly idea, but it works. Hey, we could use that in the church. Hey, I can use that in my spiritual life. I'll take a non-spiritual carnal thing and I'm going to apply it to me because, man, it works in business. Christian businessmen who are brutal in their tactics in a way that Jesus would never act. That makes no sense. That's working like the Philistines and putting the ark on the cart. And I'll let you apply it to your life. Is there a way that you're looking at the world and saying, hey, I can work out my Christian life doing it their way because their way looks good. Be careful when your values and your morals and your faith take their lead from the world or from your politics or from your business. There's a right way and a wrong way to approach the Lord. Exodus 25:14. The Lord said, You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. Numbers 4, verse 15. Tells us when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, including the ark, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And it lists all those things. And the Ark of the Covenant was central to that. So after covering it over, the sons of, of the Levites, the Kohath tribe, the clan, would come in and they would pick up the Ark and carry it. And nobody touched it and nobody looked inside and nobody removed the covering. That was the right way. Now I sat down in my study and I thought, okay, but there's got to be a reason for this. Why God had him carry the ark instead of put it on a cart. And I started thinking through, maybe it's this reason or that reason. And I began to realize that I was doing the very thing that is wrong number four. Wrong presumption. There's a wrong presumption. You see, they had spotters on either side of the cart. They had Uzzah on one side and Ahio on the other. Uzzah means, some might remember this, it means friendly. Actually, so, no, that's strong. His means strong. Ohio means friendly. So you had Mr. Strong and Mr. Friendly. Mr. Muscle and Mr. Personality walking on either side of the cart. You know, walking along there. I don't even know if either one of these guys are Levites. Much less sons of Kohath. But even if they were, they are not doing it God's way. Somebody along the way made a wrong presumption. What do you mean? I mean they presumed upon God's reasoning for having the ark carried. Well, the reason the Lord wanted the ark carried was a safety issue. So that nobody got hurt and the ark wouldn't be dinged or dented up or anything. That's why they were supposed to carry it. So we'll station spotters on either side. Problem solved. I know he wanted it carried, but we got it our way and we figured out why God is doing what he's doing. 
Someone might say, well, the Lord wanted the ark to be carried as a manner of ceremony. And so all we really need to do is have a big ceremony around it. Have the worship team show up. Verse 8, that's exactly what they did. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and with trumpets. Galen playing his heart out. You know, I mean, they were all there. But it's not what God asked. And you and I can get into trouble when we start to presume upon the Lord. To assume that we know why God said what God said. Well, I know He said that, but what He means in my life, you know what that is? (laughs) I just read about this this last week. Deconstructionism. You know what deconstructionism is? Have you heard that word? That's saying that what was intended by the original author, uh, author of a book doesn't matter. It's how you interpret it. It was very big in the 60s and it has completely, completely seeped into our school system today. It doesn't matter what the author of the book meant. What do you think he meant? You know, honestly, I don't care what you think he meant. I want to know what he meant. And we get into trouble when we start saying he meant this or he meant that and so we shift and do things a little differently, rationalizing our way through it. We think that God just kind of winks at at our behavior, maybe our little white lies or our tiny sins, as if we know the heart of God, let me tell you something, we don't. We have a long way to go. In fact, I think we have an eternity to go before we really know the mind of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, It says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. I looked up that word appraised. In the Greek, it literally means examined, discerned, or investigated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are called to be investigators. And you don't take anything, here comes a repeat, you don't take anything Pastor Rick says at face value, you investigate it. You look and see what Scripture has to say. If someone says, I've got a great way to cart along our faith, you say, well, hang on a second. Let's investigate and make sure that's God's way and not just someone's idea of what God's way maybe should be. How do I investigate things? Instigation. Is it really from the Lord? Consultation. Lord, first. Lord, is this from you? Transportation. Lord, is this how you want me to carry out your will? Presumption. Is it more consistent with His desires or your desires? It's an awful lot we do in the name of the Lord that's really just in the name of you or me. Well, God told me to do this. Yeah, because it's what you wanted to do. Maybe He didn't tell you at all. Tell you what, the loudest voice in Rick's head is Rick. And it's the voice that needs to get silenced. Someone give me an amen. Verse 9. <laughs> when they came to the threshing floor of Titan, Uzzah put out his hand to, to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. Gang, listen. Uzzah was just doing his ministry. He was just doing what he was supposed to do. He, he was sincere. He was there. They called him up. Hey, we need you to walk by the ark. Oh, cool. All right. I'm on it. And so he's just functioning in his ministry, doing what he was asked to do, and he died for it. Why? Because there is a right approach and there is a wrong approach to the Lord. 
Verse 10, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. He struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah and he called that day, called the place that day, Perez Uzzah to this day. And we're told David was afraid then of God that day saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Number five in your list, wrong location. The ark should have been, as I said before, originally in the tabernacle at Shiloh. That was the original right location. That was the place that God said, I'm going to put my name there when you first come into the land. And in fact, I've shared this before, if you do an aerial overview of Shiloh, I have a a map with an aerial picture of it. You see there in Shiloh, because of the way the valleys run, you see, as in Jerusalem, it looks kind of like that, which is the Hebrew letter Shem, which is the letter they use for Shaddai, for the Lord. God says, I'm going to put my name there. That's where the ark was supposed to be, in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And had things been done accordingly, the right way, it never would have been taken into battle all those years before. It never would have been in the house at Kiriath-Jerim. It never would have landed in Obed-Edom's house, although Obed-Edom probably was glad that it did. But maybe not at first, but after three months, he was getting blessed big time. Verse 14 tells us the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. But as is dead. And David is upset. His theology is rattled. He's confused. Why would God do this? I'm a man after God's own heart. I'm in a relationship with God and he kills this guy. And it's my fault. And now David's afraid of the Lord and he's asking the question. Look at the question he asks. How can I bring the ark of God home to me? You know how many people ask that question? Let me put it this way. How can I bring Jesus home to me. How can I, with my baggage and my life and all the things that I've done, what's the list? Tell me the list. What do I need to do to bring Jesus home to me? And how can I do that? And I hear you saying, Rick, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And the right way just sounds awfully hard. Listen closely. The centerpiece of Israelite worship was the ark, as I said before. It was housed there in the Holy of Holies. Annually, it was sprinkled with blood by the high priest. One time a year, he would go in there and sprinkle blood on the ark, and that was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. To atone for, which is just to cover over the people's sins until the next year. Above the ark sat the mercy seat where God said, I'll meet with you. But the greatest significance of the ark gang is not what it was there for in Israel's day. It's what the ark pointed to in our day. And that is Israel's Messiah. Now I've shared, and I'll quickly share this with you, that that the ark is Jesus. At least picture of Jesus. It portrays Jesus in the Old Testament in some absolutely amazing ways. Very quickly, the acacia wood of the ark. The acacia wood was common desert wood. You can find it on any tree. It grows up in the deserts of Israel even today. Listen to this verse. Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us Jesus grew up before him. I added the word Jesus. says he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. That's how acacia wood grows up. What are you saying, Rick? That that choice of wood for the ark symbolizes the humanity of Jesus Christ. But all around that common wood was gold inlaid, outlaid, overlaid, all over, inside and out, the gold for the ark that portrays for us the deity of Christ. Jesus, who was both God and man, simultaneously, 
The communication wood and the gold surrounding the ark. His eternal, all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful nature represented by that gold. And Philippians 3 verse 20 tells us this, Our citizenship is from heaven, from which we eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, who will, talking about Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself? Sounds like God to me. The deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, both seen in the ark. The contents of the ark also picture Jesus wonderfully. Why would God stick a jar of manna into the ark? What's the purpose of that? So, so that it could be another little religious icon? No, because the manna was itself symbolic of a, of a bread that would come that was eternal. Jesus said in John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In that same place, Jesus said, you, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and died. This is bread that will help you live forever. Aaron's rod that blossomed, that that budded, was in the ark. Numbers 16 and 17 tells that story. The people were rising up against Moses and Aaron, and so the Lord said, hey, have have the leaders of the people who think they're all that, have them bring their staff. Aaron, bring his staff out. Put them there before the ark, in the the, uh, tabernacle. And in the morning, let's see whose staff buds. They're all dead wood. But Aaron's staff blossomed. God said put it in the ark. Why? Because dead wood blossoming into real life reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A dead body that suddenly bursts forth back to life. Impossible, but not with God. John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And so Aaron's rod, the blossom, the jar of manna, both pictures of Jesus, the Ten Commandments, also put into the ark. How is that a picture of Jesus? Well, he said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Listen to me. I love this picture. The Ten Commandments resided in the ark. In the same way that Jesus kept the Ten Commandments in his heart perfectly. They're inside the ark. They're inside Jesus. He said in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And so we see in the ark of the covenant this amazing picture. The mercy seat. Oh, the mercy seat that sat on top. What an amazing picture of Jesus. And I shared this before. and You can look this up on your own time. But in John chapter 20, I believe it is, the women go to see the body of Jesus that's not there. They go to the tomb. And what do they see there on the stones? They see sitting one at the feet and one at the head, two angels. What was on top of the ark? Two cherubim facing each other, wings touching, face down. Another picture of what happened. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 tells us that every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's why it's called the mercy seat. It's where God sits because the job is done. Because the task is completed. Because Jesus did what we cannot do. He's waiting there for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, all that said... Please listen closely for a minute, because I've got to share personally. I, I had studied through most of that, and 
and finished. And I I got a phone call this week about a tragedy that I need to share with you in a moment. But it totally changed the direction of what the Lord, I believe, wanted us to consider this morning. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to approach the Lord. But listen to me, it may not be what you think. It may not be what you think. I'm not talking about a legalistic, ritualistic, lawful, awful religious procedure. That is the wrong way to approach the Lord. There is a right way. You see, contrary to all popular thinking today, all roads do not lead to the same destination. All rivers do not run into the same sea. All approaches are not acceptable to the Lord. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to get to God. Now, this past Thursday, President Barack Obama was in Egypt. Now, before I say anything about President Barack Obama, would you please understand that I'm not about to go political once again on you. There are those who have questioned, Rick, you're just spewing politics from time to time. Listen, I was hard on the Bush administration about their Middle East policy because I believe it was wrong. I just believe it was wrong. However I may have voted or whatever party I am, doesn't matter. I believe what they did and what they were doing was wrong. As much as I believe what's going on in our current administration regarding Israel is wrong. And that's not a political position. It is a biblical position. But let me share with you, putting no spin on it whatsoever, a quote directly out of the text of Barack Obama's uh, speech there in Egypt. He says, and I quote, All of us have a responsibility to work for the day when Jerusalem is a secure and lasting home for Jews and Christians and Muslims, and a place for all the children of Abraham to mingle peacefully together, as in the story of Isra, which is in the Quran, when Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, peace be upon them, joined in prayer. It makes me wonder, is there a coexist bumper sticker on Air Force One? You've seen it. It's got the Muslim crescent, and it's got the Jewish star, and it's got the Christian cross, and and they've added other things. It's got the sign of Wicca in it now, and some other things. Some would say, Rick, shouldn't there be a coexist? I mean, shouldn't we as Christians be the first ones to want to love and, and tolerate and exist across the board with everyone? Shouldn't that be our desire? By the way, I was just sent by, uh, by Matt Freeman um, a couple days ago a YouTube video counting Muslim population in the Middle not in the Middle East, in Europe. You know, within a few years, the Muslims will surpass the Europeans in terms of total population of Europe. You know, right now, it's estimated at the current growth rates that in America, within 30 years, America will be predominantly Muslim. Well, Rick, you got a problem with Muslims? No, I love Muslims, but I hate Islam. And I'll tell you why. And please hear this. I hate any religion that draws people away from Jesus Christ, who is the right way to God. There is a wrong way, and there is a right way. By the way, Barak said, we need to gather peacefully together, as in the story of Isra, when Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, peace be upon them, joined in prayer. Have you ever heard the story of Isra? It's in the Quran. I don't know why you haven't heard it. It goes like this. <laughs> it's a story about how Muhammad was visited by the angel Gabriel. And, by the way, I'll just throw this one in there. Paul is very clear in Galatians 1.8. 
if we or an angel from heaven gives you a gospel other than what you have already received, let him be accursed. The door is shut on any new gospels. But apparently, a Gabriel, you know, no shame on Gabriel's name, but this is what Muhammad claimed. Gabriel came to him and began to reveal Islam to him. When Gabriel came on this one occasion, he brought a horse. I don't make this stuff up. The horse's name is Barak. It is. Brought the horse Barak to Muhammad, and Muhammad then goes on what's called his faraway ride. Which Muslims today say is to Jerusalem, but the word, the name Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is not mentioned anywhere in the Quran, not one single time, although it's mentioned several hundred times in the Bible. Jerusalem's not there. But they say it was Jerusalem was the faraway place. He rode there, he tethers his horse Barak to the wall. What wall? Muslims say the western wall. And then from there he made a fantastic journey to heaven. When he got to heaven, he had a little powwow with Moses and Jesus. The three of them hung out together and talked together. And then Muhammad said, you know, and then he got summoned to go speak to Allah. Muhammad goes up to speak to Allah, who, by the way, shares nothing with the nature of the God of the Bible. How can you say that? Well, when Muhammad first went before Allah, according to the Quran, Allah said, you need to tell the Muslims that to be a good Muslim, you have to pray 50 times a day. You see, the God of the Quran, the God of Islam, is an exacting vengeful, mind-changing God who you can never know if you're in or out. You never know if you're doing the right thing or not. You just hope beyond hope. It is, an, it is a religion of fear. Not a religion of freedom. Not a religion of peace as the politically correct pundits today would try and have you believe. And by the way, pick up a copy of the book The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades and you'll be amazed. He goes before Allah, he says, you've got to pray 50 times a day. He comes back to Moses, not to Jesus, he's off doing something else apparently at this time. Comes back to Moses, and Moses says, 50? Nobody can do that. Go back and talk to him again. So back and forth and back and forth. Finally, he gets it whittled down to five times a day. So every good Muslim now must pray five times daily. And if you don't, big trouble. That's the story that President Barack Obama referred to as truth. If I shared that story with you here this morning and and said it was truth, what would you think of my faith? What would you think my belief system was? (laughs) (laughs) Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. What did Jesus say? You know what's amazing in the story of Isra? Muhammad didn't have to go through Jesus to get to God. He went straight to God. Or to to their God, Allah. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. One way, and that is the right way. Now I've got to go a little further with you. There's a right way and a wrong way to approach the Lord God. I absolutely believe that. The right way is through Jesus. The wrong way is every other way. But Christian people, listen closely. And those of you contemplating Jesus, on the verge of making maybe a decision for Him, because of what Jesus already did on the cross, there is nothing you can do to prepare yourself to come before God. You just come. You come as you are and you come in faith. And it is truly that simple. There is nothing you have to do. And I heard even just this last week that there's some confusion. Someone was saying, but I've got to do this and this. No, you do not. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You don't have to do anything. The doing happens once you've come to Jesus and He begins to work in your past and your present and your future. He begins to work righteousness in you that you cannot work. And if you believe this morning that you got an agenda of things that you got to do before you get baptized, before you give your life to Jesus, you're missing the point. That's the wrong way. And even in the church, we pile way upon way of it. You've got to do it this way. You've got to do it this way. Make sure you cover it this way. And, and, and we get all freaked out thinking, am I really saved? Let me tell you, here's how you know if you're really saved. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? Yes? Saved. From this point forward now, Jesus begins to work in you. Jesus begins to break problems of the past. Jesus begins to heal issues in your life and wounds. Jesus begins to lead you forward step by step by His power and His strength, not by your great righteous works. And we've got to understand that is the wrong way. The right way is to say, Jesus, I surrender to You because You're the only way I'm getting in. And we follow Him. Peter was definite about this, quoting the prophet Joel, Acts 2.21. He said, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, when I was a kid, and I believed a little more legalistically than I do now, I thought, whoever believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. I thought, in addition to, <laughs> and I believe in the name of the Lord, but i got to do a few more things. i got to do my part, Right? And I was afraid that by just saying, if you believe in the Lord, you'll be saved, that someone will say, okay, I believe, and walk off and never change. Hey, if you say, I believe, and you don't change, you never believed in the first place. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, change is going to come. It will begin to work in your heart and in your life by His power and not yours. Paul said in Romans 10.12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all. Don't miss that. That's a Christian Paul talking about Judaism and Christianity. Same God. Islam didn't come along until 600 years later. Different God. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's repeated a second time for those of us who were slow and missed it the first time. Because the right religious ritual is not required for salvation. Nor is the bland universal acceptance that is prevalent in our world today. There's a right way and a wrong way and the right way is Jesus. Believe on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. I was talking this morning after uh, first hour with Marge Kimball who had recently befriended a Muslim girl who tomorrow is flying back to Pakistan. But she's been living for the last year with a Christian family here in the United States and going with them to the Assemblies of God, and boy, is her world being rocked. <laughs> and it's really cool. And we were talking about this, and Marge was saying when she first met her, this girl was saying that she was so absolutely terrified by being in America to forget one of the five daily prayers. Because if I miss one, I might be out on my ear. Aren't you glad that the truth is Jesus and that the truth sets you free? We're not bound by all those old rules. We're bound by the one loving Christ who saves us. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith.